Well, I'd like to introduce our panel before my voice gives out real quick, and we'll uh, go ahead and start with some questions here in just a moment. But uh, we've got down on the far end there, we have Tolian Chavijan. He is the senior pastor here at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. He is also the author of uh, several books, including his most recent book, Glorious Ruin. He is the founder of the Liberate Conference, and the mission of Liberate is to connect God's inexhaustible grace to an exhausted world. And all of his ministry resources are housed at liberatenet.org. That's liberatenet.org. Tullian is married to Kim, and they have three children. And then next to Tullian, we have uh, Pastor Al Pino. He pastors uh, Palm Vista Community Church in Miami Lakes. It was a church that he planted about 16 years ago with Sovereign Grace Ministries. Al is of Cuban descent, and he's married to Desiree. He has four children and four grandchildren. Next to Al, we have John Piper. John Piper is the former pastor for vision and preaching at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, and currently he serves as founder and teacher with us at Desiring God Ministries, and he's also the chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary. He's married to Noel. He has four sons and a daughter and an ever-increasing number of grandchildren. And then next to me, we have uh, Felipe Assis. He's the founding pastor of Crossbridge Church in Miami. It's a church plan associated with the Redeemer City to City Network. Felipe is from Brazil. He is married to Beth, and they have two children. And so what we'd like to do uh, this morning to kind of kick things off, and the reason we've included some other panel members is to, is to help you get some context for how this kind of teaching might be worked out in local churches, and particularly here in local churches in South Florida. So we'll start with Tullian, and then we'll move to Al and Felipe. And what I'd like you guys to do is just give us a little, just a, a brief snapshot of your story and how this material has affected you personally through the years and how it's affected the way that you pastor your churches. So, tell you. Yeah, I'm not sure that I would um, phrase it in terms of how it uniquely shapes ministry in South Florida. I mean, obviously, we are in a context that is relatively unchurched. Um, I was telling some friends over lunch yesterday that it's shocking at how large the South Florida area is, how heavily populated it is, and at the same time, how unchurched it is. Um, what, I've, what I've learned uh, over the years doing ministry down here is that um, one, and this Tim Keller was a huge help to me in this regard, um, that one of the reasons people outside the church from a human standpoint reject Christianity is because it's, in their minds, indistinguishable from moralism. When they hear Christianity, when they hear something about the Christian faith, uh, they automatically assume a to-do list version of morality, um, and so they reject it for whatever reason, uh, a behavioristic version of, you know, Christianity. Uh, and so, learning how to deconstruct moralism learning how to deconstruct legalism um, and show how it's distinguished from the gospel of grace, uh, I think has been a challenge uh, because, I, you know, what I say from time to time here at the church is when I, when I preach the gospel and distinguish it from moralism and legalism, I said, if you're going to reject the Christian faith, reject what I just described, 
don't reject the caricature of what you have, for whatever reason, uh, come to believe the Christian faith is about. And so I think uh, an emphasis on God's past, present, future grace has been remarkably helpful uh, in showing people what the Christian faith is really all about, that the focus of the Christian faith is not the life of the Christian, it's Christ um, and His person, His work, past, present, future. So that's been hugely helpful. I think one thing, um, and uh, John said this in, well, you said it last night, but you also say it in the introduction to Desiring God, uh, which has been hugely helpful to me over the years and here as well as a pastor, is, um, you know, the only way, he said in Desiring God, the only way I've learned um, to deal with the sin problem is to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. And I think unpacking that, uh, what that looks like, uh, showcasing the magnificence of Christ's person and work, His ongoing activity in our life and the promises He has made for our futures, a huge help in um, helping people gain a distaste for the for the false gods and the idols and, uh, you know, that people are so addicted to, whether here or anywhere else. All right. That's helpful. Thank you. Al? Yeah, I think uh, early in my walk uh, with the Lord, I was associated with a ministry that was very charismatic in every sense of the word and uh, saw faith acting and, and, and powerfully in play, justifying, healing, um, filled with the Spirit. Um, experiencing many of those things, but it would always seem like when it came to that sanctifying faith, people's lives changed. There was that big question mark. So you could see miracles happening. You could see people, auditoriums filled with people worshiping God with all of their might. And when they go home, doing things they knew they shouldn't do, and the church being devastated by that. So the question was just really, really strong in my mind. And then as I began to read about the doctrines of grace and went from this very charismatic ministry to Reformed Theological Seminary to study. <laughs> and uh, I remember being in my Greek exegesis class, uh, I think it was with Reggie Kid, I can't remember, um, studying Galatians 5, 6 and trying to understand that. What, what is this faith that, that works uh, through love? And what, how, does that, how does that happen? and begin to get in categories about the flesh and about the power of sin is broken, but the presence is still here. And how does that work? Uh, so personally, that's been a journey for me since 95 when the book first came out. Devoured it and began to try to apply it. And then, uh, you know, have four children, so raising children. And just talking to my daughter back there at the break, just around the dinner table trying to understand these dynamics. So personally, it's been a blessing with my kids. And then, of course, as we prayed earlier today in South Florida, not unique, but I think there is, uh, it just seems to be more on the surface, that pulsating sensuality, whatever you want to call it. Um, it can just be shocking almost. But the power of God, you know, is greater. Um, so, yeah, in my life, in the life of the church, that's how we've, sought to apply it and see it work. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Al. Felipe. I just read the book um, a couple months ago when you guys sent me a copy. Excellent. <laughs> and uh, What would you think? It was, it was great, you know, and I mean, I, it, it was almost like as I was reading, I was like, man, this is, uh, 
the new contextualized version of some of John Owen's writings, uh, Mortification of Sin. Uh, you know, I appreciated how John was really practical with this book, especially towards the end. But, and it, it also sounded very familiar with what I was exposed to when I was in, when I was in seminary. Um, I'm from Brazil, my dad is a pastor, he's actually here today. Um, visiting, and um, you know, I grew up in a denomination that was TR. You guys know what that means? Truly reformed. Truly, totally reformed. Totally reformed. Filled with mean TRs, <laughs> and uh, where the doctrines of grace are not necessarily transferred uh, in a very practical way. And when I went to a seminary in Brazil, and then later on to RTS, while I was in RTS, I was studying under uh, Doctor. Um, uh, Doug Kelly, I don't know if you are familiar with Dr. Doug Kelly, but he, uh, he said, you know, I have a project for you guys. I want you guys to look into this material, the Sonship Seminars, and I want you to write a paper on it um, because it was very controversial back then, with the, especially within the PCA, EPC circles, and et cetera. And uh, I decided actually to take the seminars, you know, pay for you know, the, the counseling that comes with the material, it's a thick material. And I think I really understood the gospel there, you know, because uh, they were able to explain in very practical ways, which most Reformed people have a very hard time explaining the doctrines of adoption, elect, uh, adoption, justification, sanctification. And uh, as I was reading your book the last few days, I was just thinking about that. You, there's a different terminology to all of that, but it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's a practical application of the doctrines of adoption, justification, and mm -hmm. sanctification, which have really changed uh, my life, my approach uh, to everything. My wife and I, um, you know, that has affected the way that we relate to each other, the way we relate to our finances, to our children, to our ministry, et cetera, and et cetera. And so, um, very good, very good work. And uh, yeah, so it's been very important to me, the core of the doctrine that John develops in the book. So, Excellent. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing, Ben. And uh, what we like to do as we continue this panel is we've had a lot of folks submit questions uh, on the cards and, and over Twitter and, and texting and such. And so we've culled and we have uh, what we think is a really helpful batch of questions representative of, uh, I think, the group. But uh, as we're going over these questions, if you men want to jump in at any time, feel free to as well. If there are some questions in your own mind about what you've maybe recently read in the book or what you've heard in the seminar, we'd love for you all to uh, just interrupt and or, or follow up on a question and tee up something else. But let's start here. Uh, we had a question that came in, and uh, I think this is probably playing off of last night, John. And the question is this. <clears throat> this person writes, I'm confused by the use of the terms salvation and final salvation. I've not heard of that distinction before. Is that equal to justification and sanctification or something else? That's a very good question. Um, the word salvation in the Bible is the big word that includes every part of God's saving work from justification to adoption, redemption, reconciliation, sanctification, glorification. I, I use salvation to cover that. And so when I say final salvation, I simply mean the last act of it, glorification, eternal life, being in the kingdom, passing muster at the judgment day. What I think throws people off is that the 
uh, criteria for justification and the criteria at the end for final salvation at the judgment are not the same. In order to be justified, one needs to throw himself wholly on the mercy of God and the righteousness and blood of Jesus with no uh, fruit at all, just trust. As soon as he's born again, the evidences of his being a new creature in Christ and justified, accepted, loved, forgiven, once for all, he begins to perform the fruits of, of the Holy Spirit. Those are required, the Bible says. Pursue the holiness without which, without which you won't see the Lord. And so, if you don't use some phrase like final salvation is um, an evidence or a, a result of those acts distinguished from justification, then you're going to confuse people about what's the ground of justification, what's the instrument of justification. And the ground is the blood of Jesus, and the instrument is faith alone, not any works at all. But the Bible is clear that at the end, works have two functions. They evidence the reality of faith, and they will be the means by which we are differently rewarded. And so that's the distinction. Final salvation is passing muster at the judgment, and what you will need there is both justification and the evidence that you are justified. I'd love to know if there's any, any better way to say that here or, or misgiving. I would just like to ask you, um, in, in what ways do you see people being differently rewarded? Because I know that that's a question that I get asked a lot. Yeah. In terms well, of good works. Yeah. I'll, I'll answer that, but if, if you have questions about the other, be sure to ask it. Um, the best I can determine about the nature of the rewards is that uh, some will be granted a higher capacity for joy than others. Edwards talks about it this way. Keller talks about it this way. And I, th I think if you ask, what does the parable of the cities mean? You will get two cities, you will get five cities, and you will get ten cities in the kingdom. And I think in the, in the root of it, at the bottom of it, is in the performance of those acts in the kingdom, those different acts, you will have different capacities to enjoy me. So the way, the, the reason it's a problem is because there will be no sadness. In other words, nobody's cup will be three-quarters full and therefore eternity of frustration. Well, if everybody is full, how can there be any distinctions? If everybody is fully happy, and, and the answer is they have different sized cups different capacities for joy, and everybody as happy as he can be, and everybody happy in the other person's degree of happiness. 
What's your view? I've, I've, always had a, I've always had trouble understanding that uh, precisely. But, you know, I, as I was even thinking about the passage that you quoted this morning, I think it was uh, out of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21, yeah. uh, when um, uh, Jesus is saying, uh, do not curse the, those that persecute you because your reward yep. is in heaven. Yep. I, to me, um, I, I, don't see diff- I don't see different levels of reward. I, I, I see Jesus filling all in all. Uh, going back to the, the words uh, of the prophets, that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters covers the sea. And when I think of my reward in heaven as a future aspect of, of grace, I, I, I think of who's, who, who's my reward in heaven? You know, when Stephen was being stoned to death, he looked, he had a vision of heaven, and he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God the Father. So my reward in heaven is an advocate. My reward in heaven is a representative. He's there. He is my reward. He's rep- he represents me before the Father. And to me, that's, that's what, I, uh, what I see. You know, I, now, like Paul says, I see it like in, in, in a mirror, you know, which back then was a fuzzy sort of object uh, made of metal. But in the future, I will see my reward face to face. It's Jesus himself. So that, that's how I see it. Well, there's no doubt that, that, that Jesus is, is the reward. And then the question is, do the other texts that speak of varied rewards, like we will be recompensed according to the good or the evil that we, we have done, verse 8 of Second Corinthians 5 and Romans 14, 10, and First Corinthians 3, where uh, if you build on this foundation with wood, hay, and stubble, that will be burned up. And if you build with of, of silver and stone, uh, gold, it will be rewarded. Whether those texts are sufficiently dealt with in just saying we all get Jesus. We do all get Jesus, and Jesus is the sum. And so the, 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 the way I've tried to say yes to that and yes to those texts is to say that your capacity to enjoy Jesus might be bigger than mine. Same reward, same satisfaction, but trying to come to terms with all the texts that deal with differences of rewards, that's the way Edwards and others have tried to do it, and that's my best shot. So it doesn't at all disagree with saying Jesus is it. It's then, okay, what are these differences then? And I think capa- capacities to enjoy Jesus might be different. Uh, two quotes. One, going back to the first answer you gave regarding relationship of faith and works and final salvation. I mean, one simple reformational phrase that has always helped me is simply, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is, as the Westminster Confession of Faith speaks about, it is the nature of faith to produce good works, which is always described as loving, sacrificial service to our neighbor. Um, So that's always been helpful, that distinction. Um, and then I think, uh, to, regardless of what one might say about rewards, and that is a thorny, sticky subject uh, for at least the you know, numerous people that I talk to, everyone seems to have a question about that. It's hard for people to come to terms with those texts, um, is to simply refer back to what Augustine said, which is uh, even the rewards received are God crowning his own gifts. So, um, right. what, 
the reward, however it's described, defined, that is received is not something that we have accomplished independent of who Christ is and what He has uh, and will accomplish on our behalf. It's, it's God recognizing His work in and through us and therefore receiving all the glory. Right, it's good. Totally. Let me tag on uh, kind of a follow-up question then maybe to that first question about uh, salvation and final salvation. This question came in, if believers are judged according to works, what assurance do we have of final salvation in light of a text like Matthew 7, 21? This text seems to indicate that Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, to some who both profess faith and manifest that faith through good works, casting out of demons, doing mighty works, that type of thing. So how can we know whether our works are the result of saving faith or whether we are simply self-deceived and not really known by the Father? What, what he said in that verse was, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity, not you workers of good. They, they cast out demons. That's not a good work. The devil can cast out demons. They heal the sick. The devil can heal the sick. The working of iniquity is doing unloving things to people. So, this, the, the question of assurance is a real question no matter what your view of works is. <laughs> and that is the role they have in the final judgment because the question reduces to how do you know you have faith? If you say, oh, I, don't, I don't think you have to have, give any evidence of your faith in works, I say, okay, fine. Uh, how do you know you have faith? Well, I just have it. Well, you could be self-deceived. So all of us, all of us wrestle with assurance. There are late-night moments for the most veteran saint who says, am I real? There are a lot of perks in the ministry. You write books, you have audiences, and you don't need to be saved to do that. And so the devil can whisper in our ear, you're not real. You just love the strokes. That's why you're in it, man. So the problem of assurance is there for everybody. And the, the answer of 1 John is to point us to transformation in our lives. That's not the only answer in the New Testament. Romans 8 is the bottom line answer, I think. Romans 8, 15, um, where it says, the, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God when we cry, Abba, Father. So when you cry out in your dark night, oh God, you're my Father. Now, either at that moment, the Spirit's going to testify, you're real. That's a real statement. You're my Father. You're real. Or it's not. And if it doesn't, there isn't any trick to assurance. There isn't any list you can check off. There isn't any deed you can do. There isn't anything. It is a profoundly spiritually subjective experience. So that's one, Romans 8, 15. The other that's so helpful for me is 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So you get two statements. You are my Father, and Jesus, you are Lord. If you mean those statements, 
you can have assurance. But the devil will make you crazy asking, did I really mean it when I said Jesus is Lord? Did I really mean it when I said, God, you are my Father? And the only answer is, look to the cross and hope it happens. I think, too, um, the Matthew 7 passage is one that has haunted people for a long, long time because you've got scores of people. I mean, Jesus says there will be many on that last day who cry out, Lord, Lord. These are not outside the church people. These are not atheists and agnostics. These are people who are crying out, Lord, Lord, who are doing works in Jesus' name, the passage says. And so when you get to the end and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, which in C.S. Lewis's remarkable words were banished from the presence of him who is everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. It's an amazing statement regarding that passage. But um, you get to the end uh, where he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity, which begs the question in context, well, what are works of iniquity? <laughs> um, and within the context of those verses, work, works of iniquity are works of trusting in me and my doing and not Christ and his doing. I did this in your name. I did that in your name. Look at all these remarkable things I've done in your name. In other words, ultimate faith, the reason those people are ultimately cast away is because their ultimate trust, their ultimate faith was in what they were doing, not what Christ has done. And I think that's super, super important to keep in mind because otherwise, you know, uh, you workers of iniquity is left undefined and you go, well, what does that mean? And we all attach, you know, different descriptions of what works of iniquity look like. And within that context, I think the bottom line is a worker of iniquity is someone who is ultimately trusting in what they have done uh, or, um, you know, instead of what Jesus has done for them. I think that's important. This reminds me of a, uh, a passage in the Bible where uh, uh, Peter and John, they're preaching the gospel, they're healing the sick, and then Simon the magician uh, comes in. And uh, the, the text says that he's baptized, he believes, he receives, he's baptized. And, uh, and then the, the apostles, they come from, from Jerusalem uh, to, to witness of, of what's, what, was, what was going on there. And, uh, and then he asked them, he says, hey, can you give me some of the gift so that I can use that as well? When I lay on hands on people, they would, might receive the Holy Spirit. And then he's uh, reproached. And, uh, and so th there are many people, I think, in the context of the church, uh, especially in America, that um, are doing a lot of good in Jesus' name, um, but it's flowing out of a sense of self-confidence. In fact, a lot of the teaching in the churches is, is how to build your self-confidence, mm -hmm. how to boost it up, and uh, how to have a victorious life sort of thing. Uh, depart from, you know, a true understanding of who you truly stand, who, who, you, who you truly are uh, in Jesus Christ, you know, you're standing in God. So, so yeah, it's good. Very helpful. Thank you, man. John, another question has come in. Actually, it came in in a couple of forms, and I'll see if I can fuse these together. So one question read this way, how does a Christian grow? Is it by faith in future grace or by faith in one's justification? Is there a difference? 
That's related to another question that came in that just says that, uh, I'm assuming this is maybe from somebody here at Coral Ridge, but noting that uh, Pastor Tullian often emphasizes the role of past grace, justification, in, in our current sanctification. Pastor John, you seem to emphasize the role of future grace. So how do these two emphases work together, and are they in competition or not? Well, those two very different questions. Let me, let me start with the second one, how do we grow, and then how do past grace and future grace fit together? I, I gave, you know, five minutes to that, but I'll, I'll put it in a minute. Um, past, the, the essence and heart of past grace is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for undeserving people. If that hadn't happened, there'd be no future grace for anybody. There'd be hell for everybody. And therefore, all hopes of future grace is built upon the confidence of the past grace of the cross, and therefore, you never leave the cross behind. And I love the renewed gospel emphasis of our day, which produces book after book after book of focus on the center, which is Christ crucified. And all I'm doing is drawing out the necessary and explicit biblical implication that what happened there to sanctify me was the purchase of present and future power. That's what he bought when he died for me, otherwise it would make no difference in my life at all. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace, and that grace was bought by Jesus, and therefore my heart should sing over the cross with every step I take in future grace because it was bought by the blood of Jesus. So there's the connection. He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, past grace, how shall He not with Him give us all things future grace? That's the logic. The logic is from, if he did that much, will he not do this? But this is where we live. And, and I'm not sure people get that. That's why I teach on it, that in order to, to put your foot in the next step of obedience is done in the power of a grace that arrives for that, which was bought back there. But it's a grace that arrives for this. And this is what you need. This is what you trust right now is the power of the grace to help you make the phone call or stay in the marriage or discipline the kid or forgive the kid or whatever. These are present experiences of ever-arriving grace, and there would be none of them if there weren't the cross. Now, the question of how do you grow I, I don't think either of the answers that were suggested there is what I would say. Uh, there's another seminar to be given called How to Grow in Faith in Future Grace. I haven't said hardly a word about it, not a word. And the answer is read your Bible. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, and not just when you got saved, but every day of your life. The only way faith grows is by God speaking to you. I'll do this for you. And when he says, I'll do this for you, faith rises. And if you don't hear him talking from the Bible to you, your faith is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Faith is a response to revelation. And so hearing with faith is the way the Holy Spirit comes. So the task of growing, walking out of here and saying, Okay, I think I got the logical structure of all that and the way faith is supposed to work. Uh, 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 now, uh, where, where, where does it come from tomorrow morning? And, and my answer is John Piper got up this morning at 6.30, not 7.30, 
in order that I might read four chapters in the Bible crying out to God for him to show himself to me so that my faith would rise. That's the way I live my life. Amen. Very helpful. Let me ask another question here. Is living for the promise of future reward selfish? Why would God seek to motivate us this way? Shouldn't we be motivated toward holiness for the love of holiness? No. (laughs) No. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Enduring the cross was the most holy act that was ever performed in the planet. It was the most loving act that was ever performed. This is Immanuel Kant, not the Bible. Doing right for right's sake is a philosophical atheism. Doing what's right because it's right is atheism. Doing what's right because God has given it to you as a pathway to Him and joy is Godward and theistic. It is not morally defective to want to be happy in God. It's morally defective to want to be happy in money and alternatives to God, any of them, morality or immorality. Alternatives to God as a path to happiness are the essence of sin. What God calls you to be is happy in Him, and that's the way you defeat all other promises of happiness. So that, that is such an important question to ask, and I just, there's a seminar before this one. There's there's one after this and before And the one before this is to persuade you that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. In other words, the pursuit of your satisfaction, your satisfaction is the only way ultimately to glorify God as fully as He should be. If you do obedience for obedience sake, holiness for holiness sake, why would God be honored at that? God is honored because He satisfies your soul. He seemed to be beautiful and, and, and valuable, and you treasure Him above all things. That delight in Him is not a sin. It's the right motivation. You're about to say. Yeah, I was thinking about that passage in Hebrews that he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He rewards those. So I think you know, the Bible uh, gives us that motivation. I think, and it makes sense. Amen. Amen. Very good. Let me ask a different one. John, you alluded uh, in one of your answers just a few moments ago <clears throat> to what Satan can do in our sanctification, and this question sharpens that a little bit more. This person writes, I appreciate the talks on fighting for faith and the emphasis on fighting against our remaining and indwelling sin. The Scripture also seems to put significant emphasis on, on the believer fighting against the enemy. Satan. So could you speak to that a little bit? What is the connection between our fighting for faith against indwelling sin and our fighting against the enemy of our souls in this quest for joy? Yeah, it's the same fight, and he's real. Jesus modeled for us how to fight the devil, right? So the devil says, if you're the Son of God, turn the stone into bread. If you're the Son of God, jump off the temple. If you're the Son of God, bow to worship me. And what does he do every time? He quotes the Bible and he believes it. He believes it. Man should not live by bread alone. Live by me, every word that comes out of my mouth. I believe you, Father. I'm not going to do what this devil is saying. 
I believe the devil is a murderer and a liar fundamentally from the beginning. And the way he murders is by lying. And therefore, everything I've been talking about is demonic. It's all having to do with the devil. The devil is behind every temptation. Now, I didn't talk about the devil much, a little bit, because I think he is fought not by power encounters mainly, but by truth encounters mainly. I think the devil is put to flight by trusting Christ. He cannot abide faith. He cannot stand joy. I, w I participated in one exorcism in my life. I think I've put the devil to flight every day of my life, but I've participated in one ugly and amazing exorcism. And just to put a long story, in a, in a, it came to a crisis after about two hours of, of demonic encounter with a demon-possessed woman. It came to a crisis by singing truth. We sang over her until she went mad. She, the devil hated our singing. She flopped on the floor, flailed around like a fish, fish screaming to stop it. And then she went unconscious. Could not stand the singing, the joy of truth. And when she woke up, she was a totally different person. Her face was different. Her voice was different. She had knocked the Bible out of my hand over and over again as I tried to read it. And I put it in her hand and said, read Romans 8 to me. She read the whole chapter. Came to our church after that for, for months. The, the, the heart of that deliverance at that moment was a truth issue. Enjoyed. We, we, used, we used the tune, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Somebody just started singing that. We had about eight people in the room. Wouldn't let her out. She had a pen knife she was trying to stick people with. They wouldn't let her out. So I knew God was powerfully present. We just sang that song, and when the Alleluias were over, people just began to put other biblical truth in there. It drove her, drove him out of her. And so, so Satan hates truth. He hates joy in the truth. And therefore, if you, if you bump into him, which you do every day, live in the truth. The, the, the sword of the Spirit is the one offensive weapon to stick the devil with, and it's called the Word of God. I remember Keller one time, you know, said something that was really helpful. He said that the, the devil does two things. That's the two ways in which, which he attacks us, by tempting and by accusing. When tempting... He magnifies the pleasures outside of God. When accusing, he minimizes your status before God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you fight with truth. You, you, when he accuses you, you remind yourself through the scriptures of who you are in Christ. Mm -hmm. You're a new creation. Right. You're a child etc. And that's what the Spirit does, right? The Spirit reminds us of that gospel. Yeah. But the Scripture has to be read. That's good. It has to be memorized. It has to be in you. And uh, in temptation, you fight it by what you were talking about yeah. these last two sessions. Yeah. Yeah. Remind yourself that the pleasures in God are greater, yeah. and they're long-lasting, and they're eternal. That's good. And so that was helpful to me. Yeah, I'm not, not sure that this would be appropriate at this moment, if not. 
cut me off and we'll go to the next one. But you're not going to perform an exorcism, are you? I was thinking about okay. it. Okay. Yeah. It happens. I just, want, I just this, wanted this to get out of the way. Row here is looking a little funny. Yeah. So <laughs> I just wanted to get out of the way. That's I, I think <laughs> coming from the, the charismatic world, where oftentimes sanctification might be couched in terms of like a spiritual warfare, cast the demon of, fill in the blank out. Uh, and obviously, seeing year, for years that wasn't effective. <laughs> um, and then realizing that spiritual warfare often is this truth encounter. For example, uh, seeing warfare in Colossians 3. So you've got, you've got the uh, objective truth, the indicative of what's happened, verses 1 to 4. And you've got this spiritual warfare, this applying the future grace, faith in God's power to be able to enable me to say no to these horrific things in verses 5 and on, to put to death. He's writing to Christians, you know, sexual immorality, covetousness, uh, lust, which is idolatry, anger, wrath. So there is a battle there. It's a truth battle. It's applying that grace, you know, the indicative, as we begin to have faith for the imperative, and then putting on, as God's holy people, mm. dearly beloved. So the battle is believing that, mm. putting on, you know, compassion, mercy, patience, kindness, uh, letting the word dwell richly within us. So yeah, realizing that that probably is the context of spiritual warfare for most of us. Not denying the other can't happen occasionally, but probably every day it's that battle. It's that mm -hmm. Colossians 3 battle, mm -hmm. 1 to 17. Mm -hmm. It's very helpful. Thanks for pointing us to that text. Well, as uh, we round for home in the next couple of minutes, I'll see if we can get in two more questions here. <clears throat> Pastor John, uh, you said that Faith in future grace is necessary because gratitude is not enough to empower a Christian in pressing forward. So could you just go over this one more time? Why is a heart of gratitude not enough? Because the Bible, not John Piper, says that we are to live by faith. It never says live by gratitude. It says live by faith. In fact, it is stunning to me that um, remarkably well-respected theologians can sum up the main motive for Christian living as gratitude when the Bible never does. I mean, never explicitly says live by gratitude. It's always talking about living by faith. Now, to say it negatively like that makes me sound like I'm dumping on gratitude. You can't be saved without gratitude. In fact, Romans 1 says if the, the, the reason these Gentiles are lost is because they did not give thanks to God or glorify Him. We, we cannot be saved if we're not a thankful people. And I could preach a whole series of messages on the ethical effects of gratitude on the Christian life. Let all, let all foul talk be put away from you and replace it with gratitude. Gratitude pushes out certain kinds of ugliness from your mouth. You can't be a thankful husband and a bitter, mean-spirited husband at the same time. So amen to the necessity of gratitude and the moral importance of gratitude. However, gratitude is a focus on past grace. And what I need for the next hour is more power. I need power. And 
Gratitude isn't what I need. I need the Holy Spirit to arrive. Does he who supplies the Holy Spirit to you do so by works of the law or by gratitude? No, he does it by hearing with faith. So I'm just a desperate person. That's why I talk about about the the inadequacy of, of gratitude. I think a morality that only is argued for in terms of this is what you do if you're grateful will lead to a works religion. It will lead to a payback religion. So he's done this much for you. How much, how much he done for you? What do you do for him? We know the tune. And, 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 and it, it, it did not serve me well. It did not serve me well growing up. I didn't have what I needed when I was, okay, he did that much for you. Now, wouldn't you? It just didn't click. It, 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 it misses something so profound, namely, he's arriving with grace every day. Trust him. Believe in it. That's, that's a different kind of orientation towards doing the next thing than saying, okay, I suppose to do the next thing. He did that much for me. Now I will perform that's what it, it shouldn't lead to that. It doesn't have to lead to that. A gratitude ethic doesn't have to go there, but it can. And I think a good antidote to keep it from going there is a little two-hour seminar on future grace. And you can never pay back. To, you, you can never pay back to the level that Christ has paid. You know. In fact, so it in, frustrates you. It disappoints you. Like I can't ever do it. In like fact, you, did you, it. you can't pay back yeah. anything. Here's the reason. Because can I stand up? Sorry. So I'm required, I'm required to take a step of obedience in gratitude for grace. But the step of obedience is reliance upon grace. So I'm going deeper into debt with every step. I'm going deeper into debt with every step of reliance upon future grace. You, and, and I am simply happy to have it so. I will be a debtor to grace increasingly, increasingly forever. Every step I take in heaven will be a step of reliance upon undeserved grace. I don't deserve to be there, which means my debt is getting bigger forever. So all thought of payback is insane. It's dishonoring to the Lord. It's a contradiction of what grace is. Grace can't be paid back by definition. If you pay it back, it's a mortgage payment. The the hymn writer says, a debtor to mercy alone, right? Yeah, Yeah. and no payback. That was great. That was very, very helpful. A little mini conference in that one answered question. Thank you, Pastor John. Well, let's, let's uh, end with this question. You mentioned uh, the desperation you have, and this perhaps is coming from someone with a desperate heart. They've written this to us. Uh, my heart, it feels like, has been hardened to the point that I don't have emotional feelings of love for what Jesus did for me. Mm. Having heard this seminar, what is my next step? What what do I do? Open to any of you men. Well, it sounds like they've, they've done it. They've, they wrote that question. And that's the first step of humbling, desperate, crying out. Um, if you're listening, if you're here, I think the next step would be uh, beginning to review some of these texts I think the Romans 5 passage, because the hardness, you know, if we look at biblically, uh, Hebrews would describe that hardness of heart. Hebrews 3 and 4 would be unbelief, and we all battle it. And so as that, the water of the word begins to just drip on it and come on it, 
listening, perhaps listening to Scripture. Maybe you can't even read it. Just listen to it. Or grab a friend and say, read it to me. Just that. They're doing it. And so I, I just pray for that person. And, you know, I, I'd love to pray for them before we're done here. That God, he's faithful. Like John said, he's the one initiating. He's the one reaching out. And I, I mean, for me, I think that's it. First of all, uh, there is not a Christian that has ever lived or will ever live that won't experience what this person is saying. And I just, when I hear that and I reflect back on times in my life when I have felt that way, it brings me tremendous comfort to know that um, God's love for me is ultimately dependent on Christ's um, infallible devotion to me not my fallible devotion to Him. I mean, if ultimately my comfort uh, came from how well I'm doing or um, how much I feel love in my heart for God today, we would live in a constant state of despair, or we would be deceiving ourselves into believing that we're actually better than we are. Um, so, I mean, for me, that's where the, the preaching of the gospel to yourself, um, going back to those familiar passages, I mean, Romans 8.1, James Montgomery Boyce said that Romans 8, chap, Romans 8 verse 1 is not simply the central thesis of Romans 8, and it's not simply the central thesis of Romans, it's the central thesis of the Bible. I mean, Romans 8 verses I go back to all the time, Romans 8, 31 and following, the, the idea that there is nothing, nothing that can separate me from God's love because of what Jesus has done and continues to do for me. Um, I mean, our ultimate rest, our ultimate hope, our ultimate comfort comes from Christ's work for me, not my work for Him. If it was based on my work for Him, I'd be in big trouble. We'd all be in big trouble. If it was based on, um, you know, Christ's, if it was based on my uh, feelings for God, I'd be in big trouble uh, because my feelings for God fluctuate. Sometimes they're high and sometimes they're low. Uh, but God's feelings for me because of what Christ has done, clothed in His righteousness, is unfluctuating. I, I think it, it, it always starts, like from here onward, it always starts with repentance, right? That's, that's how the Christian life starts. And that's how it's rebirthed always is every day and, and, and through repentance and realizing um, what has gotten me out of the bed and what keeps me going. Is it grace, uh, past, future, um, or is it not? And whatever else is taking that place, Repentance, repentance, you know. That's how sin is killed, I think, correct? You know, faith applying in the context of responding in terms of repentance. repentance. John, for that person in particular, two, two texts come to mind. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He heard my cry. He drew me up out of the desolate pit, out of the miry bog. He put my feet upon a rock, put a new song in my mouth. Now, for you, you're in, the, you're in the bog. So what the text says is, I waited patiently for the Lord. Just don't kill yourself, don't leave your marriage, and don't curse Christ. Wait. That's the first thing. Sometimes it's just so dark, all you can do is 
not destroy yourself. Just wait. Have that much faith. Just wait. And the second thing that comes to my mind, because you used the word hardness, is Hebrews 3.13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, lest there be in any of you an evil, hard heart of unbelief. So invite someone into your life to love you. Sometimes when we don't have the strength to read the Bible or pray or do anything, we're, we're just numb with hardness, like a stone, numb. Another person can read to us, pray for us, sing over us, just sit with us. So don't isolate yourself. Go ahead, draw near to another person that can, uh, and then, and then we'll, we'll pray that God will cause the darkness and the hardness to lift. Well, amen. Well, let me tell you what's going to happen next. Uh, I'm going to have Pastor John uh, close this session out in prayer, and then as the panel dismisses back to their seats, I have a few closing announcements. But then if you're able to stay, we're, we're going to have the worship team come back, and we're all going to stand and sing one final song to one another and to the Lord. So, Pastor John, would you close us in prayer, please? Father in heaven, beginning with the person who confessed hardness, we pray for him and, or her and, and how representative they are of all of us at some time, like Talian said, that by your grace, the truth that this panel has spoken and that I've tried to speak would be used by the Holy Spirit to grant faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. The Holy Spirit is supplied by hearing, hearing with faith. And I pray that all the hearing that's happened here would now be pressed by the Holy Spirit into life, into awakening, into joy, into hope. Then don't let anyone despair, Lord. Don't let anyone give up on you or your word. Come to them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.